Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Coastal Drilling and Blasting Incorporated, serving Downey, Central, and Midcoast, Maine, and located at 328 Bucksport Road, Ellsworth, 1-800-640-3515. It's 9.59, and you are tuned to your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, a major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Compassion and the desire to work for good rests in all of us. When we hear news about what's happening in the Congo, we might be moved to to write a check, but the idea of taking a year to go there and volunteer sometimes seems beyond our reach. But our guest this morning um, did just that. She took a year to go to the Congo. Welcome to Linda Robinson. Glad to have you back with us. You helped us with a program um, not too long ago about uh, teens and sexuality. So welcome back. Thank you. Linda is a nurse midwife at the Women's Health Center at uh, Mount Desert Island Hospital in Bar Harbor, and um, she took a year to work with uh, Doctors Without Borders in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and uh, we're here today to learn more about that adventure and uh, what she um, learned in the process. But Linda, perhaps you could give us a little bit more background about yourself and the work at the Women's Health Center. Okay. Um, I have been a nurse midwife since 1987. Uh, I had prior nursing experience before that and had worked overseas uh, as a public health nurse in Malawi. I was in the Peace Corps in Africa before. Um, and when, they, when we decided to move to Maine and the Women's Health Center was uh, starting up, um, it was very serendipitous. It was a it was a perfect opportunity for me to have a wonderful place to raise my kids and my family and um, do something that I love to do, supporting women's, uh, women's health and practicing the full scope of women's health care. Um, and then over, the, and that, that grew to very, be a very successful practice and, and is very well established in Bar Harbor right now. Um, but then as my life changed, my kids grew, uh, grew up and moved away. Um, and the world was changing, I started having a desire to uh, do something a little bigger. It was a little bit of a complicated process because I love my life here and I didn't want to leave it completely. But um, I had some real deep-seated problems with the direction our country was going in. Um, I would watch the 4th of July parade and watch the, the group um, of anti-war protesters, protesters saying, why aren't I walking with them? Or what am I doing? Well, you know, what am I? What am I doing? There's so many things 
that I don't believe are going right in this world, but I couldn't quite figure out what, you know, what my calling was to make a difference or to make a stand, or I couldn't quite figure out why I wasn't out there on the green and on Sunday afternoons or what my problem was, even mm-hmm. though I, I believed in it, I admired them. But I, I spent a while trying to figure out what it was that I was supposed to be doing. Um, I did quite a bit of soul searching <laughs> over a couple of years. Um, and there were many things that had to come together for me to make this decision to go. Uh, one, I needed to make sure that my kids were were on their own and independent and, and were taken care of. Um, and that that became clear, you know, that they, they could certainly live without me for a year. The, the next thing was my job. I didn't want to up and quit because, like I said, I love my life here and I wanted to be, have that to come back to. Um, and it just so happened that there was a midwife who wanted to work for one year before she retired and uh, wanted to retire in, in Bar Harbor. So that started perking with me as a, as a possible way of having someone take over my job for a year and having it be there when I came back. And then talked to the hospital administration about it, and they were incredibly supportive. That was really, really wonderful. And then, you know, the once those two things came together, I was pretty clear that I was going to go do something. wasn't mm-hmm. quite sure what, but I was I was going to go away for a year and go someplace in great need. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'd been to Africa before. I'd been to Africa before, but. I wasn't, you know, dead set that 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 was where I was going to go. I just wanted to do something. I wanted to do something important. I wanted my skills Mm. to be put to really good use. And, you know, I mean, the world has lots of needs. And women's health care and women's issues are, you know, needed all over the world. Um, But to pinpoint where, you know, I could make the, you know, the most difference was, you know, it was a little bit overwhelming and it was a little bit confusing about where to even start. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm rather goal-oriented. I have uh, I have sort of lists of things I want to do before I die, and I sort of have always been like that and have always sort of plotted along going after them. And one of the things I always wanted to do was work with Doctors Without Borders. I had always wanted to be in the Peace Corps. I did that right when I graduated from college. Um, I always wanted to live in the South Pacific. I, you know, we had done that as a family before we moved to Maine. Um, but I really, really, really admired this organization and for many different reasons. And so I started looking into going with them as a way of putting my skills to good use and also working with an organization that I was very intrigued by. And I knew they go into very intense high-need areas. Mm-hmm. And as I recall, you um, had to brush up your French skills to do this. Well, yeah. The whole process uh, was interesting. I, uh, I went to New York. There's an office in New York that does recruiting and fundraising for this organization and talked to them about, you know, where do I start? How do I start, you know, applying? And this organization will only accept your application six months before you're available to go. Now, <laughs> for a professional here who's got a, a life and a practice, this is tricky <laughs> because six months is not long enough to, to say, Would to get like someone to, to replace you. And, you know, you, people, you know, your job needs more lead time than that. So I actually had to commit to taking this year off, 
commit to this person taking my job before I even knew if this organization was going to accept me. So it's a little scary. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you have to have a little bit of faith that this is going to work out. You know, with my overseas experience and my skills, I was pretty sure they would take me. But uh, when I went to talk to them, they said, you, you know, we do need someone with your skills, but you need to be able to speak French. And then they just started asking me questions in French. And, yeah, I had taken French in school and <laughs> thought I could get by, but um, I was completely overwhelmed with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was nowhere near good enough to be able to function in a, in a job. And so it, my acceptance with them, because the position that they needed was in the Congo, and, and it's a French-speaking country. So I, I had to pass a couple French tests, and I worked really, really hard to improve those skills and actually did pass the tests that they gave me. Um, but maybe we'll get to this later. But when I got there, I, I, that, that was probably one of the biggest stressors for me, I, the communication. I really was overwhelmed with the language when I got there. Mm. Yeah. And so, doctor, so a little bit of background on <coughs> Doctors Without Borders. When did they start? What, what's their track record? Of, if uh, oh, it's an amazing organization. They, um, it started with a group of French doctors and journalists during the Biafra crisis um, years ago. That was 60s or 70s. And when they were a group that worked for the International Red Cross and had some major uh, problems with a political stance that the IRC was taking and you know, stood, stood up and, and opposed the, uh, those. What had happened was um, during the Biafra crisis, it was becoming evident that it wasn't actually, uh, it wasn't a famine. It was a, it was a politically imposed famine on people, you know, so the government was imposing this famine on their own people. And this group of doctors and journalists wanted the Red Cross to speak out against it, and they wouldn't for political reasons. So this organization started in France with this group, um, you know, as, you know, they have three three goals, save lives, alleviate suffering, and bear witness. And that's a big, big part of this, of um of their goal in the world is to get into areas that, because they're so apolitical, other organizations don't go into and um, and really identify what's going on. Um, it's what happened in Darfur. They they won the Nobel Peace Prize for identifying the, the abuse against women. And they the way their money is raised is very appealing to me. They, it's all private donations. They don't take... Um, big business money. They don't take government money. They don't thank donors publicly. I love that. They're not beholden to to anyone. Um, that is very. That was very important to me. I've worked overseas before, and I've seen how NGOs work, and I have a lot of problem with a lot of the infrastructure. Um, they also go in. They're a crisis organization for sure. I mean, so they they go into real intense areas that that appealed to me. I mm. had one year. I had one year to give, and I wanted it to really make a difference. Mm. So, and when did you find out that you were going to the Congo? Um, let's see. They so I said I was available September first, so I could I applied March first, and I found out end of May that that was the the spot that they had for me. Um, I really. Even having lived in uh, Africa, um, didn't know a lot about Congo. I mean, a lot of people don't know a lot about the Congo. It's very, it's it's very complex for one thing. And when I was in Malawi, 
the African country, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. It was then Zaire. And really pretty much all we learned about it was you can't go there. Mm. You know, it was just, it's this sort of just scary, huge entity where bad things happen in the Congo and travelers can't go there. And, um, you know, and there's, when you live in Africa, there's so much going on in Africa. I was, I was in Malawi when Robert Mugabe was elected. And so there was all this focus on Zimbabwe. I mean, we, we didn't really pay much attention to Zaire. Mm. So, um, yeah, I started, uh, I started kind of looking into it, but Frankly, before I got there, I was completely overwhelmed with trying to rent my house and getting uh, just getting my life here ready to go. It was a pretty short amount of time when you think about it. It was two months that I had to get everything ready to leave. So, so there was a, a kind of, as I recall, there was a series of, of uh, you didn't go directly to no. Shamwana, which was the village um, right. where you were. So describe that process of getting there. Yeah. They, you're very well taken care of as far as that goes. You, there was a one-week um, training of sorts in Amsterdam, which was intense. Uh, and that gives you a little tiny bit of an idea of what it's like to live on a team. They do wonderful, wonderful exercises um, that, that give you a hint. It's nothing compared to the real thing, but they do give you a hint of what emotionally it might feel like if you have to get evacuated because of violence and you're leaving people that you have developed a relationship with behind. Uh, we did an exercise that was really powerful in Amsterdam like that, and, and it was the first time that crossed my mind. You know, oh, my God. You know, yeah, they'll, they'll get us out of there if there's violence, but then when you think you're, you're working with people who have become friends and you're leaving and they're staying, it, emotionally that is hard. Mm. There, there's so many layers to this that I didn't even come close to understanding before mm -hmm. I went. I just figured, I'll, I'll figure it out. You know, I was just a little, you know, I was idealistic and I want to go help and I'll, I'll figure it out. Well, mm -hmm. it was hard. Um, and then you, so that was the week in Amsterdam and I'd come home for a few weeks before I, I left for good. Then when you, when you, when you're on your way, starting in New York and there, there are briefings, just, you know, basic stuff about your visas and getting travel money and um, how, what happens if you get sick and, um, you know, just details, stuff like that. Um, then there are, there are many offices for MSF. This is another thing that I didn't really understand. I thought there was one main office in France. MSF meaning? Oh, oh I'm sorry. Yeah, MSF is Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières. Um, they, my my uh, head office was in Amsterdam. There's one in Brussels, there's one in Paris, there's one in Geneva, Madrid. They're, um, yeah, they're all, all over Europe. But my, the office that was responsible for my projects was in Amsterdam. So I had to go through the Amsterdam office and, <clears throat> and briefed with people there. Unfortunately, most of the people I met with, I mean, all of the people I met with except one, had never been to where I was going. And I was very anxious to hear, you know, what exactly the conditions were like. I mean, I heard I was going to a really remote place, but didn't really have a, uh, an idea and was anxious for someone to kind of clue me in a little bit, but nobody had been there. And it, it, that's one thing about this organization. You can't, be, it's so mobile. Everybody is moving around all the time. And so it's, it's hard to connect with people who have actually been there. Plus, it was a very new project. It had only been, they'd only been in there for seven months, so it wasn't like there was a lot 
of people who'd been there, period. Mm. I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. Our conversation this morning is um, about a year of service in the Congo with Doctors Without Borders, and our guest is Linda Robinson, a nurse midwife at the Women's Health Center at Mount Desert Island Hospital in Bar Harbor. Linda, maybe you can kind of bring us up to your kind of first, um, describe the, the village that you were in, and, and uh, we can talk more about your work there. Yeah. Um, okay. I leave... Amsterdam, fly through Nairobi, and I arrive uh, in the city of Lumumbashi, which is in the southeastern corner of the country. The country is huge. It's the size of Europe. Um, And the two major cities, Kinshasa, which is the capital on the west coast, is is the largest city. Lumumbashi is the second largest. And I arrived there. And honestly, my first impression of landing in in the airport was, oh, my God, this is the second largest city? I mean, really, the airport looked like a junkyard. And there were broken down planes everywhere. You know, but you're kind of hyped up. And you're like, okay, I'm here. Here we go. And, you know, I'm alone. And hopefully someone's going to meet me because I had no idea where I was going. And um, so, you know, uh, a driver with a with a Medicine Sans Frontier vest is on and kind of just guides you through getting through the airport, which was a complete madhouse. And I was in Lumumbashi for five days getting more briefings. But because the area I was going to was so remote, the uh, small plane that goes in there, um, <clears throat> there's only, was on, there were only two pilots who could land there. So there were often problems getting transportation in and out. So I ended up being in Lumumbashi longer than I needed to be. And then so after five days, I was just couldn't wait to get there. So my, my anxiety about... Getting there kind of turned into like, oh, come on, hurry up. I was, I was bored. I couldn't wait to start. And um, honestly, my initial reaction was, oh, my God. I mean, it is the middle of nowhere. And you start thinking, hmm, how would they get us out <laughs> if, there was, if there was a problem? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't easy to get in there. So describe a, the village itself. There's the village, which had been completely utterly destroyed by my my fighting was just just starting to come back to life the people there had fled uh during the my my attacks and and these are rebels against the government is that how that works that's how they started out mm-hmm. um they were local militia um and the war is incredibly complex they were armed um by <laughs> several different people, um, by the government and by the Rwandans when, you know, the tribal fighting due to the Rwandan crisis that overflowed with the refugees coming into the Congo, very complex over many, many, many years. Um, and it, it would take me way longer than an hour to go through that. But the Mai Mai fighters were local militia who were actually armed to defend themselves. But in some areas, including the one I was in, sort of ran amok Mm. and tortured their own people terribly, terribly, and destroyed, just destroyed the the small infrastructure that was there. All the health centers um, were gone. Fields were burned. All the houses were burned. Everything was gone. So Doctors Without Borders was in there now, post-conflict, the fighting was over, um, and the people were starting to come back, but they were coming back to nothing. And they were sick, they'd been hiding in the bush for 10 years or more, 
and um, there was no, there was nothing there for them. So we were there to start, start providing some medical services to get them, to you know, to hopefully get them to the place where the Ministry of Health could take it over. Um, so it was very small and quiet when I arrived. I mean, it was like I said, it was very remote. There was a small airstrip. 800 meters that was cleared by Doctors Without Borders to, to get this small plane in there that could bring in supplies. And, um, you know, a, a sandy dirt path, uh, muddy in the rainy season, um, that led from there into the village, but there was no market. The, uh, the houses were made of grass, little small little grass structures. Um, the hospital was just a series of five tents. It was a real field hospital situation. We, um, our team, which consisted of seven expats, seven year, I was the only American, there were seven Europeans there. Um, we had uh, individual brick, we called them tukuls. They were very small rooms, big enough for one bed and one trunk with a thatched roof. We lived in that. That's where we slept, but we uh, ate in an open area. Um, and it was maybe 100 yards away from the hospitals, which gave us a tiny bit of privacy. There was a grass fence around, maybe a hundred, maybe about the size of a football field was the area where we worked, had all the supplies, had, um, and had our living. Mm. How many area. people roughly in, in the village were, 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 were associated well, with the village? That's really hard. Census is really hard. You know, statistics are really, really, really difficult mm. in Africa, period. Mm -hmm. Here it was almost impossible to figure out. It was estimated that there were 33,000 people from Shimona. So um, it was, you know, it was an area that was worthy of um, services, certainly, because it was, a, it was a densely populated area for being so remote. Um, but they were all just sort of trickling back. Mm. And <clears throat> they were afraid. Um, they had been tortured by the Mai Mai. When the military was sent in to sort of capture this Mai Mai leader who had run amok, the military were almost as bad mm. to the local population. So they were amazingly traumatized, and they they were just scared. And us being there gave them a tiny sense of security, knowing that we would not be there if there was going to be active fighting. So lo the longer we were there, the more people came. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, it's it's people ask me, you know, they want me to describe in one sentence what, it, what my year was like. Well, my year was very different because when I got there, mm -hmm. there was hardly anything there. Over the year, it was amazing what we built and and just how hmm, how much more alive the community was. And that was uh, something that now as I'm reading through my journals, I can see more and more because when you're you're living in it's a little hard to see. But when I first arrived there, my first impression was, my God, I mean, yeah, people are alive, but they're not really. Mm. The, the the death was just palpable and the, the lack of will to live and the the hollowness and the sadness was completely overwhelming. And I remember one Sunday, um, walking around and I had made, I had found um, some white fishing line when I had gone on R&R &R and um, I had made a volleyball net. It took me a few weeks, but I, I tied it between two trees and I, <laughs> and I strung this net and um, because I, I just felt like we've, there's got to be some kind of recreation or something because it's just so depressing. So many people die. 
And um, I remember that one Sunday afternoon watching people play volleyball and seeing kids laughing going, wow, people are, la- people are playing something. People mm-hmm. are laughing and, and feeling like, yeah, okay, maybe something, maybe, maybe this can get better. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard to keep, your, it's just hard to keep your spirits up. It's hard to keep feeling like there's, there's hope when you see what humans can inflict on each other mm-hmm. and what humans can endure. It's it's really overwhelming, mm-hmm. and there's no getting away from it mm-hmm. when you're there. We're talking with Linda Robinson, a nurse midwife who spent a year in the Congo with Doctors Without Borders. You may have questions for Linda or comments about your own experience in Africa, um, uh, making connections between Down East Maine and Africa, and give us a call if you'd like at one 866 625-9378. Linda, describe um, your colleagues. You were working with a group of midwives. and t- t- Talk a little bit about that. Okay. <clears throat> My um, oh, colleagues is a good word because there were, again, there were many different layers here of, uh, of life there. The organization um, had a, a very, um, a very hierarchical structure, okay? For, for the Europeans, there was a project coordinator, there was a logistician who is in charge of getting all the supplies there and vehicles, and um, there was a doctor, a, an outreach nurse, me, um, a water sanitation person, oh, and a psychiatrist. There was a, there, we had a big mental health program because of, <laughs> because of the mm. trauma. So you went in as a team, or you, that, that was a constituted well, team? Well, yeah, there's a team, but the team's always changing. Right. You always, you know, you're, you're, you're coming from different countries. You, um, everybody's got a different length contract. I mean, I was offered a, a nine-month contract. Nine months is what they require for a first-time person working with Doctors Without Borders. Um, I had a year's leave of absence, so I said, no, I'll stay for a year, um, which... When I got there, I thought that was a big mistake. But now I'm glad. It, I'm glad that I did. It. But at first, I just thought I cannot. I can't do this for a year. Um, but most people were there for either three, six, or nine months. Um, but you're always overlapping and always changing. And at first, I thought, no, this is terrible because nobody. You know, it's hard, it, you can't gel as a team, and and um, you know, you're continually teaching the next person. Mm-hmm. You know what's going on. But I, I see there are advantages to that um, when, because you, you get used to the conditions. I mean, when I arrived there, I, I spent most of my day trying not to gag. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I've got a pretty strong stomach, but I was mortified at what the conditions were like, you know, at the, quote, hospital. I mean, it was just ghastly. And, um, you know, and, and I would run over to... Lorenzo, who was the wa- water sanitation person from Italy, and go, my God, you have guy, you have to build something for the, for Agnes to, to wash the blankets with. I mean, she was up to her knees in mud with excrement and blood, and I mean, it was just disgusting. And then he's looking at me, going, "You're kidding me?" Because he is trying to figure out a system to get the uranium out of the water. You know, there, there was so many overwhelming tasks mm. when we first got there. It was just the place was just. A disaster mm-hmm. and um, everyone's got their own focus you know um, so lots of conflicts come up I mean, I mean it's really difficult to sit down and go okay we're, how are we going to prioritize this 
Um, I mean, it happens in your daily life all the time around here. But when you add in, you're all from different countries, even though you're all Westerners, you know. Language is a problem, even though everybody could speak English. Most people, English wasn't their first language. French was either their second, third, or fourth. Um, so, yeah, communication was was difficult. And, you know, that was part of what they warn you about in Amsterdam, certainly, is working on a team can be really, really stressful, especially when you're in a situation that's – you see so many dire needs. Um, and um, then we had maybe 60 Congolese staff working with us, you know, a lot of them, the drivers, the – mechanics the nurses at the hospital they you know we had you know one or one of the doctors was congolese um it was it was a very large congolese staff as you know when as compared to the europeans now for for maternity there uh <laughs> it was an area where it was difficult to get even national staff to want to live there because it was so remote even the congolese didn't want to go there um, so we had two, uh, we're called accoucheurs. It's a, it, it just means, it, the English translation of that would be deliverers. Mm -hmm. A delivery is an uh, accouchement. And, um, but they would be our equivalent sort of a, of a traditional birth attendant. No formal education. Um, and, okay, my job was, you know, to teach them. Um, but these are women who've been doing deliveries. That's not certainly something they were unfamiliar with. However, the standard for Doctors Without Borders is that, and I believe this strongly, um, is everyone, no matter where they live, deserves the same quality of health care. Now, to transfer a Western quality to this situation is very difficult. Um, you know, yet the philosophy was, well, you still, you still try. Well, I'll tell you, to try and teach a Western standard in a situation where supplies are incredibly limited, you put in an order, a, a, you know, an uh, international order, it takes six months to arrive. Um, people who have had no formal education, some, some of them couldn't read or write. In our, in our outer health posts, the uh, the accoucheurs there couldn't didn't even know how to read or write. Mm. Um, so when when you say um, standards, you're talking about sanitation, um, supplies, um, I suppose methods. Those are the things that you were trying to teach. Yeah, yeah. But these uh, women have been helping with births for many years. So mm. was it the more difficult births where you would have to intervene? Yeah. It was more difficult births because we were the referral center, such as it was. Um, it's where the complications came. You know, many, many women die in childbirth there. Mm -hmm. I mean, as it used to be here. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no transportation. The roads have all been destroyed. So if, someone, if someone's obstructed at home, has an obstructed labor, to get her to the hospital, she has to be put on the back of a bicycle, you know, with a crude, you know, bamboo frame. And then her family wheels her, you know, to the hospital. So often it's days before she gets there. And it was an incredible challenge, yeah, to figure out, you know, what what do we do? We did have a an operating room, very basic. Um, there was no anesthesia. It was only uh, conscious sedation for for anesthesia. So it was it was grisly. Um, 
but we were capable of doing cesarean sections, yeah, um, and, and did did do that. The 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 difficult part is teaching um, judgment, you know, decision making. You know, it's it's easy to deliver a baby if the baby's just coming. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's not hard. Mm-hmm. It's it's how to decide when you know someone's in trouble, when you need to do surgery, when you can wait a little longer. The other layer there is whose life do you sacrifice? You know, it's decisions that you never would even think about making here. It's not, you know, you don't say, hmm, when you, let's decide. We're going to let the baby die or the mother die, you know, or both, you know. Mm-hmm. There, the decision to go to the operating room is grave. Um, if a woman has a cesarean and delivers in the bush next time, the chance of her dying is great mm. of a ruptured uterus. They have, you know, they have their uh, their mortality rate under five years old is forty percent. They have twelve, thirteen kids. You know, they, birth control is non-existent. They wouldn't even think of limiting their families. They, there's that consciousness isn't there to think if if I have fewer children, you know, more of them might live. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they just don't have that consciousness. Just isn't there. So, it was overwhelming to think. You know, where do you start? Where do you start with teaching? Um, making the decision about, you know, we're, we're better off to try and get this baby out whether the baby lives or not, you know, vaginally. Um, you know, okay, add to that, I'm speaking in French, which is not my first language and I'm still grappling with. Uh, the accoucheurs I'm dealing with are speaking French, but it's their maybe fourth language. And it's all very basic. And uh, it, it was an incredible challenge. Add to that my some of my disagreements with what I should be teaching. You know, I personally didn't think APGARs were an important thing to be worried about. Remind you know? our listeners. Okay, speaking of uh, you know, an APGAR is a basic score that you give a newborn baby, uh, which you know supposedly is um, a prediction of well-being. You know, for tone and color, and I mean, we use it here all the time. I mean, and I don't even think it's that useful here. Um, you know, but it's a Western standard. And, you know, to try to teach them, I'm like, it's just ridiculous. I, I did not want to put the energy into doing that mm. um, when there were so many other things I thought were important. You know, just <laughs> nutrition for one, okay? And then, when you, you know, it's easy here to teach nutrition when you've got the food. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was no food. Mm. You know, their crops had been destroyed until we got through the first rainy season, you know, if it wasn't mango season, there was no fruit. You know, there's no mass transportation. You know, they're not bringing vegetables in from someplace else. You know, so it's like I spend a lot of time going, what do I do? Mm-hmm. You know, where do I start? Um, and <laughs> I tell you, um, to comfort myself, because I, I spent so much time just feeling like, what am I doing here? Did I just come to make myself feel better, to feel like I was doing something to help the world when really I'm not doing anything? People are all still dying. We're losing babies every day. Um, it, 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 there's this huge sense of futility mm. that I grappled with. I'll just, again, uh, remind listeners that they can participate as well um, by giving us a call, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. as we talk with Linda Robinson about her year of service in the Congo with Doctors Without Borders. One of the conflicts that I remember you writing about, and you wrote um, um, emails back to uh, people in your kind of circle of friends and, and colleagues back here in Maine, um, was the whole question of, of what do you do about measles? 
Talk a little oh, bit goodness. about that episode. Okay. This was a huge, huge, um, huge thing that uh, is still very unresolved in my heart, for sure. Um, <clears throat> measles is one of the biggest killers of children in all of Africa. It's a terrible disease, and we don't really understand how serious it is in many senses here because, well, A, it's preventable. It's a very good vaccine against it. So very few children here get measles. Um, and the ones that do, although it's rare, um, you know, are usually well-nourished nourished and have, you know, even our, even our very underserved areas in this country are much better off than, than mm. the best mm -hmm. that they have. So a measles, vac a measles epidemic can go through and you know, just wipe out a population of children. I mean, 50, in some areas, especially in IDP camps, 50% of kids that get measles die. Mm. That's unbelievable. Mm. And, then, and that's not even addressing the ones that um, have neurological damage who are blind and deaf you know, because of the disease. It's <clears throat> incredibly contagious. They live in, you know, really close quarters. So um, there, at one point, we, we got a report of, um, of cases of measles in one of the outer villages. And that's always a woo red flag because it's, it's, it's so, come. yeah, right. it's right. so dangerous. Right. Um, <clears throat> so we went out and investigated, and sure enough, we found, we found kids with measles. And um, now, we had... A lot of vaccine. Um, we had uh, kerosene refrigerators, um, so we were able to keep them cold. And the uh, the Ministry of Health, such as it was, uh, had done a measles campaign, a vaccination campaign, earlier that year. Um, it wasn't as effective as. It could have been, but however, it was it was an impossible task because people were still moving back from places that they had fled. And like I said, it's hard to find people, people who are scared of Western medicine. They see you coming and they, they flee again because they're so scared. They don't know what, who's coming to get them next. So it's not the fault of anyone that the measles campaign that was done was not effective, but it wasn't. Um so when we identify them, I mean, the, the, the protocols are very clear. If you identify measles, you vaccinate, period, the end. It's what you do. Um, so we started with that protocol. Um, and, and that weekend, we, there was a skeleton crew there. Several people from the team were away. But, but we, uh, we went out, the group that was there, there were only three of us, and we went out and we started. And reported back to the Capitol, you know, what was going on and make a long story, very, very long story um, brief. It, it turned out that it, it turned into a political issue. The Ministry of Health said we could not use the vaccines we had um, because they had already vaccinated and they did not believe it was measles. So um, over the next several months, um, many, many children died from, from this disease that we could have prevented. And it was a continual struggle with our organization trying to get permission from the Ministry of Health um, to vaccinate. I was wild. I mean, I was wild. I was so upset about this and actually still am. Um, because m my feeling was we should just do it anyway, whether we have permission or not. And 
the capital team felt like if we did this, you know, our organization could be kicked out of the country. I I struggled a lot with that. You know, I, I said... So it was the question of, well, do you save someone now or do you um, sacrifice your ability to save others tomorrow? That I mean, was that, the argument that was used. Right, right. My feeling is if someone held a gun to a kid's head and said, you pull the trigger or we'll kick you out of the country, mm. would you do it? Mm. Mm. You know, I didn't buy that argument. And, um, you know, however, if I had gone out and just said, forget it, I'm doing it anyway... The, there was a very real risk that doctors without borders would send me home. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was it was hard, and I I, I haven't resolved that yet. We're having a conversation with Linda Robinson, a nurse midwife from the Women's Health Center in Bar Harbor, and uh, we do have a call. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, this is uh, Fred in St. George. Uh, wonderful program. Thank you. I'm uh, very inspired. Um, to get outside uh, my little comfort zone at the moment and uh, do something, whatever I can, whatever it might be, to uh, um, to live up to my ideals that uh, that I have in my head. And uh, my sister was in the Peace Corps, and when she came back, she was uh, very different. And I, I'm, I'm not even going to say she was better. She was just uh, more alive. Uh, it was incredible to see the change and uh... that's um, that's a reminder of um, me and uh... getting outside my little box and uh... making a difference in the world okay. whatever it might be it's a wonderful program thank you thank you very much for thank your you. call there may be other calls please do give us a call at one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight so um, as you became working with the, um, the deliverers, um, talk a little bit about the team that you, you began to work in pretty closely and feel very connected to those folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's very interesting, the, um, the conglomeration of cultures. Um, being a nurse midwife, uh, uh, I was in a unique situation where I, I got to spend a lot of time with with the women. Mm. Um, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of Westerners, when you spend time in Africa, um, I mean, even though you may spend time with with women as, when, as well as men, it's very difficult to get the women to open up to you. Um, as I've said, you know, being a white woman, you're sort of on the level with the African men. Mm. Um, if you visit someone, you know, you sit with the men. The women never let you help, you know, try to cook or anything. Um, so it's it's a little difficult to sort of break into that and and gain their trust. Um, now, for one thing, it's hard to spend that much time because it, it it takes time, and you have so many tasks that you're doing. I mean, it's really it, for anyone that's not doing the job that I was doing. It's it's hard just physically to be with them for that amount of time. Um, but when you're with someone in labor. Um, I, I started just staying there because, first of all, I was so overwhelmed with the language that I thought, I can't just sit back at the base and wait for them to come get me with a complication because I'm afraid I'm not going to understand what they're telling me. Mm-hmm. So I, I, from early on, I just stayed there so I could just get a feel for what was going on and just be with them more and try to you know, not be around people that were speaking English and, and try to speak French more. So... Um, <clears throat> 
that was an interesting process, and I don't think anyone had done that before. Um, and I'm not sure it was all that much condoned by the organization because really my role was supervisor. But um, to me, it felt more effective to to just to be there. And um, I, th- I felt like, well, if I can't, if I don't have the language skills to really explain in detail what I want them to do, I mean, I can model it, and I can, mm. um, and I can, I can just show them because honestly, a lot of the the detail of Western medicine in that context is just not that important. Mm-hmm. I mean, be nice to women, just be there, listen to them, you know, get their history. I mean, I would ask. This all had to be translated because the women that were coming in didn't speak French. Certainly, they were speaking a tribal language, so they would, I would, you know, ask the the um, accoucheurs, you know, well, ask her when the labor started. What, you know, when did it start? Has she felt the baby move? All these things that they don't think about mm. asking, and show some interest in her. But I would never say show interest in her. I would just, right. you know, demonstrate. just do it, just demonstrate right. it, right. Um, and just little by little. I I just kind of became a fabric, a part of the fabric, mm-hmm. and even though it was really, really hard, I mean, just physically, it was really hot. The smells were awful. The you know the room that we had was tiny. It was hot. Often there was more than one woman delivering at the same time. Um, we had only had a couple of buckets to put you know body wastes in, and there was one rubber sheet for. <laughs> everyone to be on. I mean, just the conditions were mm. disgusting. But um, but just being with them developed a relationship and, and a, um, an intensity that I honestly didn't see coming. It's different when you're in the Peace Corps. In the Peace Corps, you live in the village. You're the only one in the village. You know, you're you're living with them. And over two year, the two years that you're there, <clears throat> you just, you know, you're never really part, part but you understand a little bit more because you're living mm. in the same, you know, with the, under the same conditions. Here it was different. It was sort of an us and them. So for me to 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 just sort of meld with them um, by being with this very by being this very intense female event. There are no men mm. around it at deliveries. Um, I developed a very very intense relationship with them. They opened up about polygamy. Mm-hmm. Um, little by little, you know, mm-hmm. as my language skills got better, um, we would start to have like girl conversations. Um, and I think, it, I, who, who knows? It's it's impossible to judge right. what I left or you know what the ramifications would be of how I chose to practice. But for me, it felt right. And in in many ways, I, I mean, I, I I feel like we've got to go with our gut. I, I think in a, in a lot of ways it's been socialized out of us here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> we we have a feeling we might want to do something, but then you think about brain, all, right? yeah, all the you know all these reasons why you can't do it come into play, mm-hmm. and and it felt good to um, just stay focused on what felt right. Now there's a lot less stimuli there, so it's easier to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed that since I've been home. You know, life is so full of noise and stuff here it's hard to stay focused mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. really become evident to me mm-hmm. i always kind of thought i knew that but it's really really glaring right now mm. so as you as you prepared to leave what was that like um it seems to me that after the intensity of the experience um there was the other intensity of, of oh i'm going to leave this yeah that <clears throat> that hit me hard 
Um, I spent several months literally counting the days I had to stay there. When I first arrived, I was kicking myself for signing up for a year. Hmm. I just thought, I cannot do this. I was out of my mind. And um, I, uh, over, even though, I mean, as hard as it was, over time, I started really being attached to people and and feeling like, um, I'm never going to see, there's no way to come back here. Mm. You know, saying goodbye here when I was leaving was, yeah, it was hard, and but you know, you're coming back. And um, saying goodbye there and having them say things like, you know, you're, you'll forget all about us. And, you know, like, no, no, no. And they're like, no, of course you will. And then I think, well, of course they're going to think that. How would I, I have no way of being in touch with them. There's no, there's no mail delivery system. There's no, certainly no tourism in the country. There's no, real, there's no way to go back. And I started really getting nervous about that. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done was to say goodbye there. And it, it, it really, it really kind of surprised me, especially from where I started out. Mm. Let's, yeah. take a, let's take a call from a listener. They've called one 625 9378 But uh, go ahead, tell us your name and where you're calling from and what your question or comment is, please. Hello, I'm Allison from Brooklyn. I just want to thank Linda and you, Ron, for bringing this program to us this morning. This is very meaningful to me. And I have a question for Linda. I wonder if she had a chance to interact with the people who were perpetrating all this cruelty on the population and what she thinks regarding hope for those people. Mm. And I'll take the answer off the air. Thank you. Thank you for your call. Oh, okay. Um, Okay, interesting. <laughs> because the Mai Mai were part of the local population. So I it took me a long time to understand this, but um yeah, they were just sort of back in living in the village. And nobody, well, I certain the, the local people knew who was who, but but it took me a while to figure it out. Um and that was only from people telling me. And there there are so many different layers of you know, the culture, there's the tribal system and, you know, when there's a crime committed against someone in the, in the village, there's a whole way that they deal with it on a tribal level. Um, and there's all kinds of jealousies and, you know, which I, I got to say, Doctors Without Borders um, added to. Um, because like fav- favoring some people well, over and, others? And or? it's not even favoring. When mm-hmm. you give someone a job and they are actually right. getting paid... Right. That creates jealousies. Right. And we, you know, we had lots of people working for us, but there were lots more who wanted to work for us because it was a great, well-paid job. But um, but it would be, you know, I'd hear about some kind of some kind of altercation in the village and they would and someone would say, Ah, oh, yeah, because that's his son was my mind, so they, you know, the other people take it out on him and um and I'm like, whoa. I mean it, it just it runs very, very deep and intricate and um, and the the military too. I mean, the military people who were once military who are now in jobs aren't trusted, and um, it makes for a very unstable feeling. And I, I tell you, I don't know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. It's not as it's not even as clear cut as the Hutus and Tutsis. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, two tribes who look very very different and who are very easy to recognize. Um, this is all all enmeshed, but it's all just perking under the surface. And a lot of people have asked me if I felt unsafe, if I ever felt threatened. And, and I, I 
didn't really, there was never a, a threat, out and out threat of violence. Yet, there was always this subtle feeling of things could change at any moment. Mm. Uh, you could always feel the tensions. And yeah, that was because the perpetrators were all in living in the village, villages again. Both of our calls have, have, have talked about the importance of just getting outside of our daily lives to, to, to hear, um, perhaps as you did, to experience um, the rest of the world. And, and what, what um, message as you've talked to people as you've come back about Africa? Africa is, is a mystery to most of us. And so are you developing some kind of um, idea of what we should know about Africa? It, it, oh, it, that's such, it's so hard. I, you know, I came away from this intense experience going, I don't know what mm. to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always been attracted to Africa. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. And, and I, the only thing I think of is I used to love watching Wild Kingdom when I was mm-hmm. a kid. And maybe mm-hmm. that's it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But, um, but, but what having you, what you did in terms of um, um, the, the midwives that you worked with sounded like you you were with them, <laughs> you spent time with them, and that's quite a different thing than our policies, Correct. our our uh, aid processes. Maybe that's the message. Well, you know what? That comes from my Peace Corps experience. Mm-hmm. Okay, the goals of Peace Corps are very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, in Peace Corps, the goals are very um, are very simple. Mm-hmm. It's learning about each other, mm. you know, accepting each other for who they are and learning a little bit more about who you are. Mm. And eventually, if little by little that happens, you know, we understand and accept people, there will eventually be world peace. Teeny, itsy mm-hmm. bitsy grains of sand. And I think taking that experience into this one you know, changed my behavior a little bit. It's not, you know, because this, a crisis organization is very different. Mm-hmm. You know, we're like, we're, you know, we're coming in, we're going to help you, we're going to, mm-hmm. and you realize it's all so temporary, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I often felt like this is just a castle in the sand and and we're leaving really nothing. One of your, um, one of your colleagues um, in Doctors Without Borders wrote, um, year after year, everyone waits and waits to see if the latest round of violence will bring a period of calm that will last long enough for them to resume a normal life. Year after year, people are disappointed. I stayed long enough to live through two of these cycles. The already displaced are displaced again, and then again, another agricultural season missed, another school year missed, another relative loss to violence or preventable illness. So... You know that's that's the cycle that you you saw a piece of, yeah. and um, we have to realize that, that those cycles aren't going to go away easily. One more call. Oh. Let's let's try to take that call, and we'll see how about wrapping up. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, thanks for the great show. I just wanted to um, throw in a little um, a little alert closer to home um, as we're talking about making safe birth available for. Women, um, the Blue Hill Hospital has recently announced that they might shut down the obstetric service because of a financial crisis that's going on, and that's really disturbing when you look at um, access to really wonderful health care with caring people um, in small hospitals. So I just wanted to um, put in uh, the two cents worth that if people care about having wonderful midwives available in our area, um, I would suggest they contact uh, 
Eric Steele, who is the interim administrator at Blue Hill Hospital. Um, I had my son there, and it's a wonderful place, and I'm just heartbroken to think about that not being available to people. So um, just uh, thank, thank you very much. Thank you for your comments. Bye. Linda, we only have a couple minutes. So um, what message would you like um, listeners and other people in Maine and, and to, to, to know about um, Africa and this experience? you have something to read? Yeah, I was going to read. Uh, this is just thinking about, you know, how I processed the whole thing and how things had changed from when I got there and in my own head. I had, I wrote extensively every Sunday home, and um, this was something that I had written in in May. I, I got there in September, and this was after being there several months already. I um, This is just one passage that said, every philosophical question that I've had since arriving seemed to come to a head this week. I don't have any more clear sense of whether what I'm doing is right than when I arrived. I can just speak French better. I know the security rules better. I know how to get supplies out of the stock and deliver them to where they need to go. I can use the radio without having a panic attack. Okay, yay for me. Papa Abel, who was a teacher before the war, still works as one of our guards and spends his days and nights opening and closing the gate for me. And he's happy and privileged to have that job. He always seems so happy to see me, always thanks me for my work every time I pass through that gate. The fact that he can smile at all is amazing to me. It overwhelms me. And I look at people who have, you know, suffered just unbearable, you know, see their families murdered in front of them, have babies taken out of their arms and thrown in a fire. And I, and I think, oh, my God, you know, why, why was I born into this life? And why were they born into theirs? And, you know, it gets so overwhelming. And you look at there's so much to be done. And I come back over and over to the same message of just be nice to each other. Mm. You know, I say that here all the time. Be nice to each other. Be happy with your work, whatever it is. You know, don't waste things. Turn mm. off the lights. Mm. You know, simple. It's, it's, it's simple, but you drive yourself crazy if you, if you try to, you know, solve it, solve, all. solve it all. And so, you know, that was the way I, you know, emotionally survived was to bring it down and, you know, smile back at Papa Abel. Mm. Mm. You know, thank him for opening the gate. Thank you. You've got an um, um, appearance at the Southwest Harbor Library next week. Right. I'm going to be talking about my experience. I also have lots of slides. Great. Yeah. And you're working on a book. Right. Okay. So yep. we may hear more about this. Thanks so much to Linda Robinson, a nurse midwife from the Women's Health Center in uh, Mount Desert Island Hospital, to talk about her year in the Congo with Doctors Without Borders. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks to those who listened and called in. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Mm -hmm.